0: And all of a sudden, Les turns to me and he says, No, that's it. We're making a deal right now. And we made, I would have to guess, probably the largest salary of a marketing guy in the United States in 1991. If I told you, you'd be like, That's not possible. I personally loved the East. I thought it was more competitive. I thought it was more drop the gloves and let's go. And plus, Les was blowing everybody's doors off. There was no comparison, Stuart, in terms of what he was doing. It was the only time in ski magazines top 50 ever that an eastern ski resort was in the top 10 and it was sunday river and had beaten killington for the first time ever and of course i jumped on that like a dog on a bone
1: welcome to the storm i'm your host Stuart winchester to california today first a quick reminder that if you haven't already subscribed to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at StormSkiing.com, you're making a mistake. Look, the pod is a lot of fun, but it is a small part of the storm. The newsletter is the only way to see all of the editorial content that accompanies the podcast, plus all of the text-only stories that I push out. Hey, did you hear about Sunday River's new 8-pack yesterday? Did you hear about it the second that Sunday River announced it? If you subscribe to the Storm Ski Newsletter, you did, because I had a full breakdown of that new lift and the enormous terrain expansion that's going to accompany it the second that the news release went public. I drop that kind of stuff all the time. And you're going to miss the next one if you don't get in on this. You can also follow the Storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First, my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional mountain gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is a monster. 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What hasn't changed is the incredible wide ranging writing and the show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, due out this fall, features an enormous gallery titled The last days of skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today at MountainGazette.com to reserve your copy. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure that you get that story and everything else in the magazine in issue 196 as soon as it's out. Use code Coast all one word, for 10% off everything else. Including vintage magazine covers which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 55, Tim Cohey, Managing Partner... CEO and general manager of China Peak, California. All right, out to California and China Peak. If you're not familiar with China Peak, you're not alone. For the most part, it's a local bump for Fresno skiers, but it's a good-sized little mountain, and it's an Indy Pass partner and a Powder Alliance partner, so it's worth checking out if you're out that way. But to be honest with you, that's almost beside the point here. Because in this interview, we talk about pretty much everything but China Peak. That whole ski industry evolution that the rest of us have watched from the chairlift for the past however many decades. Tim Cohey wasn't watching it. He was helping to make it happen. The rest of us have read about the legends like Bill Killabrew at Heavenly and Les Otten at American Skiing Company. Tim was right there beside them. What you're about to hear is an oral history of how some of the most important events in U.S. ski history went down and how some very influential folks made their marks. Let's do it. My guest today is the managing partner, CEO, and general manager of China Peak Mountain Resort in California. China Peak has a 1,679-foot vertical drop with a base elevation of 7,030 feet. The mountain features seven chairlifts serving more than 1,300 acres of terrain. Prior to purchasing China Peak in 2010, He spent 17 years as CEO, President, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Marketing Officer, and General Manager of Kirkwood Mountain Resort in California. He began his ski career as a ski instructor at Snow Summit, California in the 1970s, and has been a ski industry leader for more than 40 years, spending time at Heavenly, Sunday River, and Big Bear. Tim Cohey is my guest. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Stuart, glad, glad to be here.
1: So let's go back to the beginning here, talk about Snow Summit. How did you get your first job there? When was it? And what was it specifically?
0: Uh, you know, like a lot of people, uh, I, I started with friends. I had uh, guys that I went to high school and college with, and uh, I, we were all athletes, and, and they all got started really back in 1973. And uh, as ski instructors at Snow Valley, which is in Running Springs, about eleven miles below Big Bear, uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains, and and so I started uh, started skiing with them a little bit, and then the very next year, um, I was I think I was a, a junior or a sophomore at Long Beach State, uh, where I ended up graduating uh, back in seventy seven, and I joined the ski school there in that time. So that was the 1974, 75 was the first winter, and then. The following year, 75, 76, uh, I was still uh, in the ski instruction business, but I my dad had purchased a small uh, A-frame cabin less than a half a mile down the street from Snow Summit. And I remember commuting uh, while I was up there back and forth. I would drive right by Snow Summit to drive the 11 miles of Snow Valley. And I, and I couldn't help but notice, A, they had substantially more people, and B, they had substantially more snow. And so all of a sudden I said, even though I was with all my, my high school and college friends, uh, at snow Valley, I said, look, I have got a free place to stay and I can literally walk over to snow summit. And it's, it was, uh, you know, by far the dominant ski area in the region obviously still is with, uh, with bear mountain. But, um, I, I went over there in 1976 in January and I said, Hey, do you need, uh, any ski instructors? And, um, they said, well, you know, we're always looking for, you know, good people and good skiers and people that can, you know, speak to the public. So I interviewed that day, skied for the uh, top guys that day, and that was the beginning of, uh, of a, almost, a, almost a 40-year relationship with Snow Summit one way or another and Dick Kuhn, who um, became, you know, my mentor and, and closest friend for four decades.
1: Snow Summit was the start of your career, but it was the beginning of something else important too, wasn't it, Tim? It, it looks like you met your wife there. We met
0: in uh, yeah, 19, my, my career, uh, actually right, right before I started in the, man, in the marketing business, which was 1979, uh, in 1977, we started the Snow Summit Race Department with a guy named Chris Riddle who became still a friend today over 40 years later. And then in 1979 was my first job. Um, Anita, uh, my wife now since 1986, was a ski instructor there. Uh, but we didn't we didn't I, I knew who she was, she knew who I was, that kind of thing. But we didn't have our I had our first date in 1982, November
1: 1982. So so how did you come back together all those years later? Well, um
0: I um had uh had been married once and uh I I I married very young in my mid-20s, and I was uh and had a child when I was 26. Um and I I was uh you know, frankly, an unprepared guy. To be to be the, in that kind of a relationship I was working literally work we worked every day I mean I literally for six years i've worked seven days a week in the winter and and she traveled and as a flight attendant and and uh, so that was really on me that was a i i was you know not the right guy for her fortunately we have maintained this incredible relationship she lives forty minutes from us and, and we see her all the time and we've had that relationship now for almost forty years so that's worked out great but I Anita uh, was single at the time and I was newly single and uh, we met through friends in 1980. We, as I said, knew each other and met in 92 and and then dated for about three and a half years and finally got married in
1: 1986. And in the decades since you've raised quite a ski family, uh, five <laughs> boys. Tell yeah. us about your boys and uh, how they're involved with skiing.
0: Yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, you know, I mean, I, I didn't come from a large family. My wife came from seven so uh you know people ask how did how did i end up having five kids i said you know frankly i don't really know i I, we just you know she wanted a large family and 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 also at some point you start cheering for a girl uh which (laughs) never happened uh so we had our first child together in 1987 and then 88 and then 93 and then 96. and and then of course we had taylor the my son from the first marriage who who's also right down the road from us. So that that's worked out really, really well. The boys, um, Taylor, the oldest boy, um, was a big skier. They're, they're all, you know, it, 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 at, any, it, at the worst of the five would light up almost any ski area in the United States. Uh, but then a couple of them really took took to it. Taylor was a basketball player, so he had a bit of a conflict in terms of how much time he was gonna spend skiing and all that. He was traveling on a, on a traveling team and all that. And then Chasen, uh, Ended up, uh, he he ended up ski racing until he was 12. And then he decided that he, that was enough, even though he was really good at it. He became a, one of the top big mountain skiers, probably in the United States, uh, had competed in the North American Extreme Finals, that kind of thing. So he's a, he still is at Kirkwood probably 30 days a year. And then uh, the youngest one, Tristan, um, skied till about age 12, was a top far west ski racer as well, but thought that was going to be the end. So the two boys that really took to it uh, Troy, who's now 28, um, 20, yeah, 28, uh, ended up being, uh, top 20 at the J2 national championships. So he became a really good skier and, and is a fabulous skier. I mean, just a really good skier to look at, but the one who obviously really took to it like a duck to water was Nick. And he was a little bit smaller than everybody else growing up, but he had a unique personality and he's just, just tough as nails. You saw it on the soccer field. You saw it In every sport, you saw the risk-taking, you saw the backflips off the top of the mountain at age 10, you saw all that coming on and then he stuck with it. And so he ended up having a a very big career. He retired in 2016 and he, um, I think had 35 fist wins. He skied World Cup in 2016. He was third uh, bronze medalist at the Giant Slalom National Championships. Uh, Won Noram Cup, was a two-time All-American at Utah. And He was ranked uh, number four in the U.S. for quite some time, and then uh, got hurt in 2016 when he was skiing for Aspen right before the Noram Finals and the U.S. Cha- championships, kind of untimely, and it was a pretty big injury. But not not it didn't change his physicality. He, we just decided that you know the best he was going to do was probably get into the top 30 seed in the World Cup. He was never going to make a real big living at it. So at that point, uh, he decided that that was enough for ski racing. And then um, and then of course every three of the boys have moved on to ski careers and two are still involved. Two of them work for me, which is fantastic. The youngest one, Tristan, 25, is our food and beverage manager, a very talented young guy. And then uh, Troy, the 28-year-old, uh, runs uh, snowmaking, grooming, terrain parks, and the mountain bike park, and has and both of them uh, live at the house we have at the ski area. They split time between there and, and Fresno, which is the major market. So, And then Nick was there for two years, uh, and then uh, got married and moved back to Lake Tahoe and uh, now just had his first child. So we have a, a one-year-old grandson, a four-year-old grandson, and a six-year-old six-year-old granddaughter. And he's now moved into the wealth management business. So we have one in real estate development, one in wealth management, one who uh, is basically a coach and takes kids on major outdoor adventures for a private high school, and then two work for me.
1: That's really interesting that two of them are working at the mountain, Tim. You know, I was talking to Charles Skinner on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's the owner of Granite Peak in Wisconsin and right. Luton in Minnesota, which are two of the largest, best ski areas in the Midwest. Yep. And he said that he thinks it's so important that these large regional areas are, that at least some of them are owned and managed by multi-generational families. And he talked with a lot of passion about how he hoped that his daughters would take over for him. Have you had that conversation with your sons and thought about the future of China Peak in those terms? Absolutely,
0: and I, I know Charles, and he's a great operator. And uh, Lutzen is a fabulous area. My son, uh, two of my sons, raced there back in the day, and as you as as you know, they have been uh, they've been producing lots of good slalom skiers on that mountain. It's a great it's a great slalom hill, and uh, in fact, I think I'm uh, correct if I'm wrong. I think uh, Lindsey Vonn started there um, or somewhere back in the Midwest. But I, I know that they've had some, put some kids on the U S Ski team from Lutzen. So, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with, with Charles. You know, I, it, it, everybody wants that. If you have a good relationship with your kids, male or female doesn't matter. Um, and you have been in this, and this is what you do for a living for you know, your entire adult life. Um, it's everybody's dream to have this happen. And I know other friends of mine, I have two other friends, uh, Dick Kuhn, who's passed away in 2016, but was, in my opinion, one of the 10 most important people in the history of the ski industry. And the other one, probably similarly in the top 10, Bill Killebrew, uh, who I worked, with at Heavenly, worked for at Heavenly and then uh, has remained a very, very close friend living nearby in Lake Tahoe. And both of them, unfortunately, didn't, their kids chose not to. Bill had a son, Hugh, that was, that's at Steamboat, uh, but chose not to stay involved when Bill had Eldora. And then Dick had both Jennifer and Alex Kuhn, who opted out of snow summit. Uh, so, um, I think I'm, I'm lucky that my kids have chosen to be involved at, especially at a, at a management level. And, and I think one of them certainly uh, has a, probably a greater chance. I think Troy's probably will probably be director of mountain operations by next year. And then, um, as I begin to phase out, which I haven't done yet, but if I do, I think Chory's probably the natural candidate to maybe move into the general manager slot. So I, I hope that happens.
1: Well, whenever you do decide to phase out, you've definitely made a career out of it. And I think you see in a lot of situations, a lot of people have the first year or two of your story. They go to a ski town, they become an instructor, and then they move on and do whatever they want to do. What made you stick around and make a career out of skiing, Tim?
0: You know, that's an interesting question because I I, I think I was um, an, um in, the, in the minority in terms of how that happened. and And you're right. That's if, if you profile anybody who's either general manager or resort owner or, or president or any, anybody in any of these companies, Vale, Altera, uh, Steve Kircher's company, Boyne or or uh, or the John Cummings family uh, with Powder Corp. Um, that's generally what you see. and You'll see that they, they that, that's what happened. They got there and they kind of liked it. And next thing you know, they showed some talent. Next thing you know, they got promoted. Next thing you know, here they are 40 years later. That was not <laughs> me. That, that was definitely not me. Um, I um had not I was a stockbroker out of college. I was uh, in law school for a while. Uh my dad had very different plans than being in the ski business, more being in the in the in the uh sort of the uh, CPA attorney kind of field, and I was just ski racing too much and all of that. So I, I couldn't follow through. But I, I got into it, Stuart, because um I had uh, apparently a natural talent for marketing. I I was, uh, they, they call them natural born marketers. I'm not really sure that's true, but some people just see things differently and they see things before everybody else does. And they are pretty good at predicting human behavior and they're pretty good at predicting how to, 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 to sort of position products to make them uh, desirable to the public. And, and I, I guess I was that guy. And so I saw an opportunity in an industry that I thought did not have a tremendous amount of talent. And so I thought I could make a career of it because I thought I had something that most didn't have. And, and remember, at the time in 1979, Snow Summit was already a pretty big size snowmaker, but they weren't a marketer. In fact, I remember the, the initial discussion I had with Dick Kuhn about whether he needed a marketing guy uh, as my, my career as a stockbroker sizzled out in 1979. Um, he said, Yeah, we probably need to do that. And literally, <laughs> they said the word was like that. Now, now that marketing thing, because they were producing a tremendous amount of snow and the market hadn't been educated yet to what machine made snow really was. So I, I literally, I think would say that my career started because I said, I think I can do well in this industry as opposed to, I just love living in the mountains. It just wasn't my, that wasn't me. I was a ski racer and and all that, but, but it was not the, it was not, I'm going to stick around and see what happens. It was more like, this is an opportunity. Uh, he's going to give me an opportunity, which he did in October of 1979 at $1,200 a month. And uh, and, I, and I was going to re- report to him uh, as the owner and, and uh, general manager of the resort. And, and that became, you know, over about 40 years, it came about almost 37 years until he passed away in 2016.
1: It's such an interesting concept, Tim, this idea, this notion that there's skiing in Southern California, because you're standing down on the beach, it's 75 degrees in January, and you can see the mountains on a clear day, but I, I think it's just not top of mind that you can get in your car and you know two hours later or whatever depending on traffic you can be skiing some pretty big vertical some pretty nice terrain so as you said you identified that opportunity you said snow summit had built up but nobody knew that it was there so so how did you go about doing that how did you educate the southern california market that hey by the way guys not only do you have sunshine 365 days a year you have skiing just up the road
0: you know, Stuart, um, I've talked about that for my entire life. You know, I uh, one of the things that I, most people don't know about my background is I'm also a college professor at uh, Sierra Nevada University in like in, uh, in Incline Village, and that's been a 17 year career. It's been a lot of fun. So I, one, uh, I teach all the ski business courses there, and we have a degree in in a bachelor's degree in, in ski business at the college. So I, I've spoken about this story a lot, and the the the, the not so long story is. We figured out um, that people, as you said, they 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 couldn't understand it, because you're you're down there in Huntington Beach, you're at the you're at the beach, you're looking at the mountains, and they're brown, because you're looking at a south facing slope, and we're on the other side, we're facing north, and the and the slopes are white, but they're surrounded by brown, and they they couldn't understand it. So in 1979, 80, uh, we started calling around, talking to ski shop owners. Back when you know Southern California had 250 ski shops. And realize that, that the market, here's people who are in the business of selling skis, no snowboarding at the time, selling skis, tuning sp- skis, renting skis, selling clothes, selling goggles. And we would call them in 1979 and say, hey, as a, as a ghost call and say, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm, in, I'm living in town and I, you know, I'm a skier and I was wanting to come in and maybe look at some skis and stuff. I'm wondering what's going on. Is there, is there skiing? They'd say, no, nah, there's really nothing happening. So we had, the most, we had the people who were most invested in understanding the fact that Snow Summit was up there opening ski runs 5,000 feet long, 150 feet wide, 1,200 vertical feet in literally two or three nights off of bare ground. And nobody could even fathom how that could happen. So I realized early on, that, you know, and I think this is where I, I probably built my reputation. In fact, I, there's no question I did in that. I said, look, this is not a market share. This is not a classic. Come to me. Come to, come to use my product. Come to use my service. I'm better than everybody else. Snow Summit was already, there were 10 skiers in Southern California. We already had about a 60% market share out of those 10 areas. So we weren't going to get any more blood out of the turnip. We were going to have to gray them. We, in other words, my, I realized pretty early on at age 23, 24, this is a growth market story. This is not a market share story. So I embarked on a campaign with Chris Whittle to the next two or three years to basically educate, to basically say skiing in Southern California is like surfing or it's like golf. Some days is better than others, but it's always there. It's, you know, the, the waves may be smaller, the maze may be larger, the grass may be greener, the putts may run straighter, but you can always play golf. You can always surf, you can always ski. The, where, 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 where the real deal breaker came in was in 1982. Um, I called a guy named Dr. George Fishbeck, who was a uh, very charismatic and a real character who was by far the number one weatherman in Southern California for ABC. And he was just a character. And I said, look, until we get it on television, we had billboards, we had radio, we had TV, we had all this stuff. And we had the ski shops. We started to educate them, which is a a long story. But that turned out to be a huge win for us was educating those guys, a couple of thousand ski shop employees that we turned around. And that's a a long story that I won't share with you now. But the main thing was, I said, we have to be on television. So I made an appointment to go see uh, Dr. George. And I got in and ABC, and he said, what can I do for you? And I said, you know, um, we're up there doing things that you, you, even you can't fathom, but we're opening, we have basically right now, you know, four or five major trails, four or five lifts open, and there hasn't been a stitch of natural snow. I said, I would like to, uh, uh, to purchase our own uh, broadcast quality camera, broadcast quality video editing equipment and every Thursday, I will drive. I will have a driver take the tape, film that day. We will guarantee that we won't, you know, plug in footage that wasn't shot that day. It will always be that day, come rain or come shine. And we will walk into your office at three thirty on Thursdays, and you can air that and say it'll be the Thursday night ski report uh, at from Snow Summit. We'll deliver to you every Thursday. And he bit. And so I also said, by the way. This is going to cost us a lot of money and a lot of time if you like it and you want to continue to do it i'd like a three-year non-compete so that you all you cannot use mammoth you cannot use snow valley you cannot use mountain high you cannot use gold mine which is now bear mountain you have to use us because we're the ones who came up with this and he agreed and i'll never forget 1982 november um we, we just got lucky and the very first thursday night was a massive massive snowmaking start and we had uh we had probably three or four runs lit up it looked like an absolute snowstorm we mm-hmm. had great skiers out there skiing underneath the guns and he showed it that first thursday night and he 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 got up and he, he's one of these guys that was well he would put his face in the camera and you know it's gonna snow tonight or it's gonna rain or whatever <laughs> and he at the six o'clock news, which is, you know, the number one news in L.A. has been for decades, said uh, coming coming up next is this is is the snow report from Snow Summit. and You're not going to believe what you're going to see. That's what he said. And Of course, he came out of the new out of the out of the out of the commercial break and he showed this footage of these massive amounts of snow coming out of these guns and these guys blowing through pack powders, making great turns. We had guys from the demo team there that were. That were employees of Snow Summit on the on the ski ski instructors. We had great great skiers, so they came ripping down through this stuff. Sunny, guns blasting, pack powder snow, and that started it. And that was that was the beginning of, of converting people to say you can just go because I know it's up there. And that was almost that was almost forty years ago.
1: Uh, How long did it take the skiers to start showing up? It not
0: long. That wasn't the only thing we did. There were other things that turned out to be pretty spectacular, but it was almost, I think Snow Summit was doing about 250,000, 300,000 skiers at the time. And not long after that. And today it doesn't matter whether it snows or not, they'll do it 500,000 skiers. So between Snow Summit and Bear, uh they'll do you know 8 900,000 skiers regardless of the snow and, and mountain high does you know good business now too maybe 300,000 and that and snow valley even does some business so it, it was a it took maybe a year or two and then by that point people said now nah, it, it's it's just how it is it's you just go
1: Unreal. Well, the phones of us have been ringing for you, Tim, because not too long after you had the opportunity to go up and work at Heavenly there in South Tahoe with the legendary Bill Killerbrew, who you mentioned earlier. So, what took you up to Heavenly and tell us what it was like to work for Bill? You know, um, anybody who's been
0: around has had a long career, and there's lots of us in the industry. Um, there, there's things, there's moves you make that you kind of later on in your life, um, Sort of question whether or not that was the right move, um, and 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 I and this would be one of them. Um, the irony is, Bill and I are very very good friends today. Uh, we probably have dinner once a month. He was instrumental in our in the installation of our massive snowmaking system, which I, I'm sure we'll probably talk about at some point at China Peak, and uh, and he was as you he he was famous. I mean, he was Bill Kilbrew. and I, I would tell you, Stuart, I've met I, I've worked for I've worked for Press Smith. I've worked with, you know, uh, uh, many, many, many smart Jerry Bland. I mean, really smart people in this industry. And Bill Killebrew um, is the smartest guy I've ever known and probably, in my opinion, overall, the smartest guy ever in the American ski industry. And that includes the leadership at Vail and and Rusty Gregory is a good friend, very, very interrupt cats, Rusty. Lace Carrick, these are, you know, Stephen Kircher. These are really talented John Cumming. These are smart, smart people. Killebrew is a notch above. He's just a different level of intelligence. He, he's basically a savant who happened to, by accident, end up in the ski business through his dad's tragic death in 1977. So, you know, I, I was all, you know, when I, when the word got that got out that Bill Killebrew wanted to talk to me at Heavenly in Lake Tahoe, I was like, wow, it was all of a sudden, you know, my eyes got really big. And so you know, I made that move. I'm sure you know Dick and I. It was very disappointing, very a really emotional um, time when I left in uh, 19 the fall of 1985. And I was only in Heavenly about a little bit less than three years. And um, Bill would was a tough guy back then. Bill had taken over a bankrupt Heavenly in 1977, age 23. He was just started law school. Uh, The company was bankrupt. There was a big drought in 77. And they were in deep financial trouble I he owed, he owed uh i think it was Bank of America about fifteen million had no cash flow i mean it's it's an amazing, amazing story what he did between seventy seven and, and the early nineties and and actually in the late eighties so uh, but he was a he was he, bill would tell you he was an, he was my bat, my ball, my park, my rules guy. He was in his early thirties running one of the largest skiers in america and and he saw the world through the way Bill Kilbrew wanted to see the world. And the only people who survived working for Bill were people that were willing to say, okay, Bill, whatever you say. And that just wasn't my personality. That wasn't the way I was raised. That wasn't how Dick and I, Dick and I were best friends. And, you know, he was the owner and I wasn't, but we had a, we had our, the door between our offices was a swinging door. It wasn't even a locked door. It, It swang like a, like a screen door. And, Bill just, so, so, you know, it it was, it was, and I lived on the lake and I had a boat and it was, I was skiing at at Heavenly and and I could go anywhere I wanted to and see shows and sit in the front row. And it was something else. But, but we had an incident that happened one time in 1980, in 1988. And I remember coming home to to my wife who was looking at property at the time. And I said, you know, I don't think this is going to work for us. I said, I, our personalities you know, I'm just not the kind of person that's going to be, that's going to work for somebody who wants to run a resort that way. And so Bill and I had a falling out and it was, it was, it was really bad. And, but I, but I didn't do anything. I was going to stay until I got a phone call um, that changed things. Um, and that phone call came in
1: 1988. Yeah. I, I think that's, uh that's interesting, Tim, especially in this era when I, I think we're very split as a country. And I I think we're, very willing to let people go, um, maybe too easily, and maybe for for uh, the wrong reasons. What What was it that Bill said to you that that mended that rift? Even if necessarily you didn't go on to work together anymore, and, and made it so that you have the relationship you have today.
0: You know, um, the mistake that I made, and I and I've written. Uh, I probably haven't shared this with many people, but I've written a manuscript about my career because there's been some pretty interesting twists and turns. And it's about 150 pages that we're sort of editing it right now. And one of the things I I put in the end of the book is, you know, sort of, uh, what I would have done differently in my career over the last 40 some years. And I, and, and I regret not, um, coming forward, coming forward to Bill in the spring of 1985 and saying, excuse me, 1988 and saying, Bill. Um, I, I can't operate this way. I can't. I can't. You know, we, we we play tennis. We go skiing. We ski race. We fly around in his helicopter. We've been on vacation together in Aspen, and then and then all of a sudden we get back here, and it's like I'm. I, there's no. There's no. It's. It became too formal. You know. And so I. I said I, I. I should have said something to him because I think he would have said, you know what? Let's figure it out, and then I would have stayed at Heavenly and. Which at the end of the day probably wouldn't have been the right move from me from a career standpoint because Bill sold not too many years later, and I probably wouldn't have been working out for me with Komori gang, the Komori the uh, folks out of Japan. So leaving was probably the right move, but the way I left, the way I I, I took the I took a position uh, in '88 um, back to Southern California was was not how I should have done it. So and he and I have talked about that and it took us many years Stuart, um, to mend the fence. It, it did not happen fast. It happened years. It was probably half of a decade that we finally solved. It. And we, we finally one day and we were actually Beaver Creek. Our kids were racing. His daughter was a very good speed skier. My son was there. They both had a big day, both skied well. And we sat down at lunch and said, look, look we, we can't, we, you know, it's not, we shouldn't go on like this. We're, we're good friends. We want to be friends. And, and that's when we sort of buried the hatchet. And that was probably in, um, you know, probably in the early 2000s when I was at Kirkwood. So, you know, I I regret how that went down. I'm sure he probably regrets it to an extent, but I should have, I really felt I should have said more and, and uh, maybe the relationship would have lasted longer because it it didn't last
1: very long. It was only two and a half years. So in the meantime, as you mentioned, you went back down to Southern California to Bear Mountain. I'm not sure if Summit and Bear were one entity back then if they were still competitors. Uh, but you took that place from 90,000 skier visits to 365,000 in just three years. Talk about Bear Mountain uh, back in those days and how you did that transformation. Yeah, that was, uh,
0: you know, when, when, I, when I look back, um, those, I, I could arguably say those were the best years in the last 40. They were incredible. And uh, they were actually separate at the time. It was Snow Summit and, and Bear Mountain was called Goldmine. Goldmine was right next door to Snow Summit. Was been there for many years, but Snow Summit was doing about five times the business that they were doing. Even though Bear Mountain, you know, Goldmine is a little bit taller, a little bit, a little bit longer, a little bit steeper, but but was just a just a, a, a very poorly run, no snowmaking to speak of, a, a marginal, and Snow Summit just just absolutely. As I said, there was no compare. Yes, anybody go? Well, you go to Snow Summit if you can't get a ticket. Then you go to Bear, then you go to Goldmine. So when I, so I I had, you probably remember a name of Foster Chandler. Uh, Foster Chandler, in my opinion, uh, if not the best, the top three probably marketers in our industry's history back when marketing was a lot more challenging than just, you know, who has the best uh, YouTube video. And I I exaggerate that point, but it's it's just not what it used to be. It was more complex, more challenging, more important back in the day, I think, because it was all still skiers were still independently owned. So you had 400 people competing with each other, not not four companies owning 70% of the skiers in, in America. So it was just different. And Foster and I were on the National Marketing Committee together back in the mid-1980s. So I represented the West, West Coast on the, that committee. He represented, obviously, the East, along with a couple of the guys um, that were from the East, talented guys like uh, Bruce... Uh, um, I forget Bruce's last name. All of a sudden, but Mount Snow and Sugar Bush, some talented guys, Okemo, that kind of thing. So Foster and I had become colleagues. I don't think anybody becomes like a buddy of Foster's, but um, <laughs> we there was respect there. So when they they so SKI Killington, it was Killington Mount Snow at the time. Used to be called Sherborne became SKI Public Company, bought gold mine in January of 1988, and they brought in some horsepower. Um, they brought in, they immediately started with two guys from the East, a guy named Rich McGarry, who ran snowmaking uh, for Killington, and a guy named Alan Wilson, who ran, um, was an accountant, accountant uh, one of the better higher level accounting managers at Killington. And then they also brought in a guy who became his name was Scott Pierpont, who was head of lifts at Mount Snow, plus a couple other guys. And, uh, and so I got a phone call from Foster and he said, Hey, listen, you probably heard the news. We're coming out to the West. Um, if you're interested, um, f- uh, press Smith would like to meet with you. And I said, well, you know, this is now SKI. This is a big deal. So I, we met at the top floor of Harris. It was a very uh, interesting interview. Very funny. Um, you know, kind of went on for a couple hours. And in the end, um, he scratched out and I mean, scratched out on a piece of paper, pencil, <laughs> scratched out, erased it a few times, scratched it, handed it over to me. And we came up with a, a number that I thought was, was right. And, uh, so I had to go to Bill Killerbrew and say, Hey, I'm, I'm moving. And that was, uh, that was one of the uglier times of my career for sure. And Bill's like, Bill says, this is not going to work. You're not going to be able to grow that market. Um, the market's tapped out. It just doesn't, it just does it's not going to make sense. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. My family was there. My wife's family was there. um, You know, all of our relatives, brothers, sisters, my dad, my parents, you know, her parents were all down there. And I and I figured, you know, um, and they were going to put big money in it. I think the number was close to 40 million, which was all invested. So uh, we left and we moved from uh, Lake Tahoe back to Big Bear Lake in uh, April of 1988. And that team um, you, I'm, I'm sure, Stuart, you probably have heard about that team. Um, there's never, in, in, in my, to my knowledge, there has never been anything like what happened to the people at that ski area between 1991 and about 1998. There were seven people. Here, here's a ski area doing less than 100,000 skier visits. And, um, and by the next, over the next decade, seven people from that ski area ended up running 12 resorts in America. Wow. It, it, it's when they, when they talk about the dream team, there was an article written uh-huh. I think, by Liz Rowan uh, years ago. It was, it was called the dream team.
1: Mm-hmm. And it
0: was like something happened in Southern California <laughs> through 1988 and the mid nineties that has never happened before. And we ended up running Aspen, um, um, Mount snow, Killington, Sugarbush, Diamond Peak, um, uh, Bogus Basin, Kirkwood, China Peak, Jackson Hole, and Sierra Tahoe. And I probably missed one or two. The seven people all went on to be, you know, unbelievably successful. It was Rich McGarry, Scott Pierpont, Alan Wilson, John Rice, Tim Cohey, Jerry Bland, and Brad Wilson. So, you know, what, what what happened down there was, um, first of all, SKI matched Snow Summit's pipeline to the lake. And in fact, that was a condition of sale, was we we need a permit from Big Bear Lake to run about, it was about uh, a mile and a half to Big Bear Lake so they could provide unlimited water, which they both have today. And uh, that was the key, obviously. But the, the marketing was was probably the best thing the best effort I've ever had and we basically the way the way I saw it Stuart I said look I, and, and Dick, and, and you can imagine Dick's reaction Dick Kuhn's reaction. he's like w- w- wait 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 you're coming back to <laughs> Southern California and you're going to compete 300 yards from me and I said, Ouch. Dick, I said, Dick, mark my words uh, we will we will we will the rising tides going to float all ships. We cannot, the, the success of, of Bear Mountain is, is not going to come out of Snow Summit. It's going to come out of growth because there aren't enough, if, if all we did was go into Snow Summit and pull 100,000 skiers out of their market and do 200,000 and Snow Summit does 400,000, that's a loser, loser, loser. So I said, we, I said what we're going to do is we're going to double the quality of Southern California. Right now, there was one ski area producing quality, nine that weren't. We're going to say, we're now going to double it. And we're going to put huge, our marketing budget, Stuart, Goldmine, but by the way, the Bear Mountain name came in the summer of 1988. I I was insistent with Jerry and Press and Foster. I said, guys, that's a crappy ski area. It's got a crappy reputation. We need to start new. We are going to change the game so dramatically that that we need to take the risk, even though it's a huge market. To change the name so i came up with the bear mountain name and we had the logo drawn up and all that so that's how that's how the name came about and everybody thought it was you know no, no there was no argument they said yeah gold mines is a dumb name for ski area it sounds like we're greedy so let's, right. let's bear mountain and so that worked out well so so what we did is we said look mammoth is doing a million to a million five um so someone's doing a half a million skiers um there 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 are people in southern california who do not ski locally they, they, they just don't do it. We need to build a brand that says, we are not Mammoth. We're not saying we're Mammoth. We're not even close to Mammoth. But we can fill a gap between Snow Summit, which was at 1,100 vertical feet, and Bear Mountain, which was almost 1,700 vertical feet, with longer runs and a higher elevation and a little bit steeper runs we can fill the gap between the guy says, look, I really want to go to Mammoth, but you know what? I don't have the time. And frankly, I don't have the money to go there for two days and two nights. It's a thousand dollars. I don't have the money. So I can drive for two hours. It's 200 miles round trip, pay for gas and get a lift ticket or a season pass. And it's not Mammoth, but it's a step up in terms of steepness and elevation and pitch. And frankly, the, the, the amount of talent we had running the place. It was, as I said, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was just so overdone. It was like having seven Tom Brady's. I mean, it was just crazy. <laughs> that, that's an exaggeration, but seven all pros at a ski area doing 90,000 skier days. So we, we were successful doing that. Stuart, we, 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 ha- we got very lucky. We had a big time ad agency called Catchem advertising at Los Angeles. And the creative director was a guy named Brent Boucher, who had introduced Acura to the United States. He was stolen from the from the firm that had BMW, and he was the creative director behind the introduction of the Acura brand in the United States. He was in LA, he calls me up and he says, listen, I think this is gonna be super creative and super fun, we'll do the work for you for about 25 cents on the dollar because we wanna be able to put it in our book. So we ended up with a world-class ad agency at this little nothing ski area with a new name, but a whole bunch of money and a brand new snowmaking pipe and big snowmaking. And over the next three years, it uh, it blew up. We got lucky in 1991, that was the uh, March miracle where it was a drought and then it snowed a bunch in March. And yeah, we went from, we were we did 90, then we did about 225, then we did about 240, and then we went to 365. Ironically, And uh, there's no, there's no, you can't say exactly why. That's the record year at Bear Mountain until recently. So uh, 365,000 probably till about 2017. So 1991. So for 26 years, 25 years, that became the record skier day count for other reasons. But I'm, I'm sure now with, uh, with, with uh, Altera down there um, and they're, they're, they don't have the same uh, limited ticket policy that Dick used to have. Um, so they've kind of let, you know, let the hounds out, so to speak, and and have, you know, run bigger numbers, but I don't think they've ever hit 400,000 since that time. It, It was, it was a pretty unique time.
1: So you lead this just unbelievable transformation. You're working with this dream team and nonetheless, you move East. You go to work for Les Otten at Sunday river. So what took you out there and what was it like working for Les? Another, obviously another ski industry legend.
0: Yeah. So what happened, um, was I, I really wanted to sort of morph myself out of the marketing, you know, the marketing superstar business. You know, I've, obviously I was known nationally, um, and I was making really good money as a marketing guy, but I said, look, I I, I want to run a ski area. I, I don't want to do this forever. I mean, I, I, I like this and all that. So Bob Roberts, who is the retired, um, president of the California ski industry, was one of my very best friends. Uh, one of my son's name is Troy Robert. And um, Bob said, listen, you need to change your brand. You need to change your personal brand so people think about you differently than just, yeah, the guy can market his way out of anything. And so um, the, at the time, a guy named Hank Schwartz was the general manager and president of Star in Lake Tahoe. And uh, a company called Corn Ferry, a very one of the top search firms in the world, was uh, assigned to find a new president general manager of um, of um, of uh, Northstar. So Bob says, "Look, I, I know those guys, and I'm going to call them, and I'm going to try to get you into the interview process." So if nothing else, people say, "Oh, look, this guy's you know interviewing for a GM job. Maybe that's how we should think about his brand, personal brand." So I I did. I interviewed. He got me. He got me into the into the loop. Into the. I was one of the guys interviewed. I don't know how many they interviewed. Apparently I was told they had 112 applicants and I was uh, one of 12 people selected to interview, uh, which was in San Francisco on a Friday in uh, September of 19, uh, 1991. And um, so I went up there and I interviewed with uh, John Roach, who was the CEO of Vi- Fiberboard Board at the time that owned, owned uh, Northstar North and and there were a couple other guys, and I knew a couple other guys they were interviewing. And so I was the last guy that day. And there were, I think, three that day. There were nine more interviews that were uh, scheduled over the next three or four days. So I finish at 5 o'clock, and I'm all dressed in a suit. I'm there for the day. Flew in that morning, flying back that night, the cabs downstairs, corn ferries in that uh, Transamerica building uh, in San Francisco. and enjoying the view, getting ready to get in the cab. And the guy who uh, was the my the interview who represented Corn Ferry, who I interviewed with, came out into the lobby and he said, listen, um, you think you could stay in the day? And I said, uh, yeah, I mean, what's up? Because, well, Mr. Roach, the chairman, uh, has had three interviews today and he's decided he wants one of two and he's canceled the other nine. And it's between you and one other person. And all of a sudden I'm like, I, I was just coming up to like, you know, you know, do the, go through the dance. And all of a sudden I'm one of two, this job at the time paid 150,000 a year, brand new, um, brand new, uh, Toyota Land Cruiser stock in fiberboard, which is a, another whole story. I won't tell you now, but that was a huge deal. The stock options, absolutely huge, you know, beautiful office housing allowance. I mean, it was something else. And I'm like, Wow. So I stick around. I interview the whole next day. I fly home. I, I remember I didn't have any clothes. He goes, look, we're gonna put you out at the Pan Pacific. Go to the store they have, whatever you need, toothbrush, whatever, you know, and you can wear the same suit tomorrow. Don't worry about it. It's gonna be different people and all that. I go home Saturday night, I get a call Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, seven o'clock from John Roach. This is this is John Roach. Listen, uh, we selected the other candidate. And uh, but we want to tell you that we we called the candidate. And uh, we told him, made him his offer. And he asked if he could have a, a time to think about it. And John wrote, said, um, sure, you have an hour. Because if, if, if you're not that anxious about this, we're going to call the other candidate who we are totally fine with. We think you're a little bit stronger, but we'll hire him as well. And we're pretty sure he'll, make the, he'll accept the offer on the call. They hung up. The candidate called back in 20 minutes and said, absolutely I'm in. The candidate was Bill Jensen. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I know Bill, we're friends right. and he had, uh, I call him at, uh, uh, early in the morning, uh, East coast time. And I said, Hey, congratulations. He's like, what? And I go on, on the new job. And he says, no, no one even knows I was out there. No, one, no <laughs> one knows that I was in California. I said, Bill, did John Roach call you and tell you that if he didn't accept, he was going to make the offer to the other guy. And he goes, How do you know that? I go, I was the other guy. (laughs) Bill walks into Les Otten's office and says, um, um, Hey, I'm, I'm the new president Northstar. And, and I don't know if you know that, but, but Bill and Les were very, 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 very good friends. And Bill was there when it did, Bill was there, not me. I wasn't there. Bill was there when the thing took off in 1980, they were doing 40,000 skiers in 1990, they did 500,000. Bill was there. But so Bill was part of this m- medium, and uh, absolute insane, never to be seen again, growth of Sunday River, an incredible right. story. So Les is all bummed out and it's, it's September. No, it's October now. And so he says, what am I going to do? I mean, it's October. What am I going to do? And he goes, well, I said, do you know a guy named Tim Cohey? And Les says, yeah, I know who he is. And he said, um, well, he must be thinking about something in terms of changing because he was the guy that I beat out for this job. I'm at work at Bear Mountain. My wife calls and she goes, there's a guy that on the, uh, that's called here and he would like you to call him. And I go, who's that? He goes, his name is Les Otten. And I go, uh-oh. She goes, uh, who's Les Otten? I go, he's the biggest thing since sliced bread in the ski industry. And she goes, okay, w- w- what, what is he? I go, he owns a ski area called Sunday River. And she said, where's that? And I said, it's in Maine. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. So he says, look, just come out for the weekend. It's going to be beautiful in the east, in sunny rivers. The colors are going to be, it was full fall colors. I'll have a ticket waiting for it to the airport. Just fly out for the weekend, land in Boston. I'll have somebody come get you who was Skip King who came and got me. And, And he said, just look around, see what you think. So I, I do it and, and I get out there and we're walking around and I, I could tell you a bunch of stories. It was really a fun weekend. Burt Mills and I got along great, who I think is the best mountain operator in history and uh, mountain manager in history. And uh, finally, I get ready to get back in the car. I mean, the car the engine's running, my gear's in it. Skip King is in the driver's seat. And, he, and Les says, and he's saying, look, I got to talk to some other guys. I got the guy from Rosenthal, I got the guy from Okimo, I got these other guys. I said, you should talk to all those guys. I'm 3,000 miles away. And all of a sudden, Les turns to me and he says, no, that's it. We're making a deal right now. And, and we made, I would have to guess, probably the largest salary of a marketing guy in the United States in 1991. If I told you you'd to be like, that's not possible. So it wasn't insane, but it was like more, I, I, there's no question. It was probably in the Foster Chandler range in terms, of, in terms of salary. So we went back there and I, I would tell you, I personally loved the East. I thought it was more competitive. I thought it was more drop the gloves and let's go. I thought, I mean, and plus, Les was blowing everybody's doors off. I mean, there there was just there was there was no comparison, Stuart, in terms of what he was doing, and 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 he deserved. He 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 was the it was the only time in ski magazines top fifty ever that an eastern ski resort was in the top ten, and it was Sunny River, and had beaten Killington for the first time ever. And of course, I jumped on that like a dog on a bone. And hired a big-time PR firm. It was actually Carol Cohn, who had just been resigned, had her account resigned from National Skiers Association in the early '90s, and um, we hired her, and she was a bulldog out of Boston, and we just went off on that rating. Sunny River becomes number one rated, East, 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 uh, number one resort in the East, only top 10 ever in the United States, North America. And, and he opened up, we opened up the Summit Hotel that year and all that. And, but my wife couldn't handle it. We had small kids. She was pregnant again, um, too far from home, too hard to get from Sunny River in Western Maine to to Orange County in Southern California. And she said to me in the spring of 1993, um, look, this has been a great career. I'm not asking you to jeopardize the career. I I, I get it. I know you, you like less. We were thick as thieves. I love the marketing. I love pounding on Killington and pounding on Mount Snow and and all of that and blowing away Sugarloaf and all that. And uh, she goes, but if the phone rings and it's a Southern California or a California area code, I'd like you to answer it. And uh, that's what happened. And in April of uh, 1993, uh, Kirkwood was in really tough shape, had had three really bad seasons. Uh, Michael Berry had left. In the fall of 1992, to become president of the National Scare Association, where he was obviously incredibly successful, became a great, great friend. And I'm standing in my kitchen in April 1993 in Western Maine on my 51-acre farm, Goose Eye Farm, it was called. And uh, and Michael and Bob Roberts are on the phone, and they said, uh, "I think you need to come home. Uh, Kirkwood's a mess, uh, basic, basically bankrupt, but but not really going to file because of other reasons." but the bud Klein being the owner and, and being a hundred million dollar client of the bank ego, but we've already set it up, uh, buds into it, come out, meet the guy who's the acting chairman, a guy named Tom Zuckerman. Um, and, uh, and, and they're ready to make a deal. So I came out in, uh, April and, uh, my first day at Kirkwood, they literally has a blank piece of paper. He goes, look, why don't you write a deal up? Let's have coffee in the morning. And if it's, it's a fair deal for us and, and you and all that, then let's, let's, let's get it done. So my first day was May 3rd, 1993. And my son, Troy was born May 14th, 1993. And then we had one more after that. So that started the
1: the Kirkwood career in 1993. And you found a home there for 17 years. Just take us real quick through the various jobs you had there and how you turned that place around and turned it into the Kirkwood that most of us are more familiar with. Um,
0: you know, you know, one of the things I've been lucky, not, not in every position, but in most positions, um, I've been able to make a difference. You know, I don't think I made a big difference with Bill Killebrew at Heavenly, frankly. Um, Bill would tell you that I was like a rock star. Oh, yeah, he did this. He did that. He broke into Southern California. I think that my impact at Heavenly was minimal. I also think my impact back East was kind of minimal. I mean, unless we continue to grow, we opened up quarter share hotels. That was very successful. So I was marketing the first quarter share hotel in American Skiing. We all know eventually what happened with that back, you know, with ASC and all that. Um, so, but I don't, I, at Snow Summit, we made a big difference. At Bear Mountain, we made a big difference. And then at Kirkwood, we were going to have the opportunity to make a big difference. And, um, and it, it, it was really, in, it was in tough shape. They had sunken down to a couple, thousand, couple hundred thousand skier visits and they'd lost their mojo. There was nobody running the place. The marketing had become incredibly stale. Uh, there were people there that weren't going to be able to be part of something new. They lost their mojo. So we came in at a pretty low time. And, um, um, so we had an opportunity to do something. And so the reason why I was hired was because, I mean, I didn't know anything about mountain operations. I mean, literally nothing. I had never worked in mountain operations in my life. I had, a, I had a finance mind and a finance background, so I understood numbers and all that. But I didn't know anything. about I was 37 years old. I think I was the youngest CEO in the country at the time. Bill Jensen was 39. I don't think many of us, were, many guys, were under 40 that were, you know, non-owners, so to speak. And so we we just started dig, digging in, and I brought in a couple of people that became incredibly, incredibly valuable. One was Tris Cochran. Um, who actually was from Maine, but was with us at Bear Mountain. Another one was a guy named Pete Laughlin, who was with us at Sunny River. These guys became, you know, marketing machines. Eventually, another gal named Tracy Miller, who uh, was incredibly smart. Um, and then we had a good. Ma- so the problem at Kirkwood was not the mountain; it was not mountain operations. It was, it was, it was, it was, it had just, it had just sunken down to a point where it needed, it needed a major, major boost. And we were able to do that. And then we became partners with Telluride in 1995. You know, Ron Allred is uh, obviously a legendary guy. You know, the greatest smoke and mirrors job in history was Telluride. And so they became part of Kirkwood. We made a big deal about Telluride being there. We had had some real estate that hadn't sold yet, had been sitting there dormant because there was no reason to buy. And all of a sudden, things just lit up. And so that was our, that was 95 that that happened. And then by 97, we opened our first new building called the, the, the Lodge at Kirkwood. 99, we opened the Mountain Club. And then between 1997 and about 2008, we basically built about 300 units. Um, we built about 150 single-family home sites. We built, I think, eight projects at the time, some very successful, some not so much. And then I think we hit our peak skier days in 1996 or seven. Uh No, no, sorry, about 2006, I think. And we did about almost 400,000. And uh, so it, it, it was a it was a great story. It was a great time. My kids were all raised there. Um, I, I, I like to say, you know, we probably we were there 17 years. Michael Berry was in charge for six, um, so we outlasted everybody. Michael was there a long time, many many years, but he but he was um, not the running the resort until the last, I think, six or so. John Wagner was there a long time. Who's one of my closest friends here in, in Nevada and in the industry, a big cycling partner. So I, I think we lasted longer than everybody. Chip came in the last few years, um, which was, you know, that, that was a little bit of a tough deal. Um, you know, he was, you know, East Coast guy. And um, that probably wasn't the greatest fit ever. And that the fact that he got, uh, that he earned that position at, um, in, in, um, in New York at... Um, uh, Wyndham. Wyndham, sorry Wyndham yeah that that was a that's obviously been a great fit. he's now one of the top guys on the board at NSAA so I, I think the Kirkwood thing probably he would tell you, and the other people would say probably not the greatest fit ever, but I stayed incredibly involved with the resort side and the real I ran the real estate company I went back into the marketing business and then I worked very closely with Dave Likens there on almost everything so even though I was no longer having the title, it was something I was still very much involved in most of the operations so uh, when I so I, my last uh, stint, my last stand there was in April of 2010 and uh, had one of the greatest going away parties ever. It was a, a sit down dinner for 200. It was pretty awesome. It was a great time.
1: <laughs> so you'd been in the, in the industry for decades. You'd wanted to run a mountain. You got the opportunity at Kirkwood. You turned the place around, built something special, stayed there for 17 years. Maybe at that point, you start to think, OK, maybe this is my forever place. But then in 2010, you have this going away party. You buy China Peak. Take us into that decision, Tim. Why did you buy China Peak? Um,
0: you know, the, the last few years at Kirkwood weren't, you know, fabulous for me personally. Um, there's a there's a guy that became part of the program uh, who came out of the real estate business. And and, uh, you know, he, he and I had very, very different versions of how uh, to operate things. So when he arrived in the early 2000s, uh, it, it 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 wasn't as much fun as it was before. Then before it was our thing, and we had a board of directors, Chuck Cobb, and Bud was still involved and others. But but you know, having him come in on the real estate side, but then also oh, he became CEO of the resort side. Um, that that began a time where I said, you know, th- as long as this is how it's going to be, that this is not going to be a forever thing. Even though my family was there and we we lived in Nevada and had a place in Kirkwood and it was great, so. What really happened was the opportunity, and, and it wasn't like I was going to get more than one. And it just so happened that coming around 2009, uh, Dick Kuhn had developed uh, Parkinson's. He eventually passed away from Parkinson's in 2016, and, but he had developed Parkinson's, and his kids had waved off, uh, both Alex and Dominique had waved off their interest in in running Snow Summit. So it became apparent that Dick was going to, at some point in the next few years, going to be selling Snow Summit. And I said to Dick, I said, look, um, no one, the Sierra Summit is not going to add value to it. It's a single-site resort. It's the only ski area in all of Central California, other than probably Dodge Ridge, which is now moving a little bit more north. So in that in that greater Central Valley, Central Coast Market, it's the only ski area. And it doesn't have the synergy. It's not going to be attractive to Vail or Altera or Powder Corp or or Steve Kircher at, uh, at Boyne, it's going to be, it's a one-off. And I think you'd be better off if you want to sell snow summit to make a deal and get that off the books and just, just deal with snow summit, which they eventually obviously did snow summit at bear mountain, which he obviously did eventually in 2015 with mammoth. So he agreed. He thought that was a good idea. I said, look, I'm a buyer. And so, uh, we came up with a price based on a trailing EBITDA and it was a fair price. I thought. And uh, I said, look, let's get into contract. So I had um, a little bit of money, not a lot. I had a little bit of money uh, that I had made from basically real estate in Kirkwood because we had done some developing and had done well. So I said, look, I'll put up the I'll put up the deposit and let's try to close this thing in April. And uh, so I w- went searching. I, I said, OK, here we go. And I didn't need to do a ton of due diligence, um, Stuart, because I was still on Snow Summit's board. So I was on, Dick had appointed me to the board several years earlier, which was super fun, super involved on the board. And so every, every year, one of our board meetings was at Sierra Summit. So I had all the financials. I knew all the capital plans. I knew what they had done. I knew all the people. I knew who the keepers were. I knew who people uh, were that I probably wouldn't want to work with. So uh, other than, you know, some basic due diligence on utility systems, snowcats, chairlifts, I had people that were very good friends of mine that were experts in all of that stuff so they ran utilities checks and water, the sewer plan and lifts and all that stuff. And, and I thought, I felt the ski area was very undermanaged. I basically felt that Dick had done a great job in, in replacing lifts, putting lifts where they're supposed to be, fixing ski runs, fixing fall lines, cutting this lift in half, moving this lift terminal. I thought he'd done a good job at that, but they had ignored the customer. And they were, there was the, the two guys that ran the resort for 28 years from, t- from 1982 to 2010 were uh, not, not people, people, not people, managers, no interest in the customer, no understanding what was going on out there during the day. You know, wh- where are they going to sit? Where are they going to buy food? Um, the re- you need more than one rental shop. You need the bathrooms. You ha- the, the run up the mountain, the place up on the mountain was a joke. So I knew all of that because I'd spent several days there doing due diligence. And so I said, um, I think we can make a huge difference in terms of how the customer. We 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 may not make it significantly better in terms of the ski experience because they, because Dick was really good. Dick was a, and the guys there were good operators, but we can make it a much more enjoyable place to come for yourself, your family, your friends. You know, for whatever you want out of a mountain experience, other than just riding lifts and coming down the mountain. So we we ended up closing in May, which is which had unbelievable twists and turns at the end. Huge problem. With the Forest Service, that thank God Michael Berry bailed me out of, um, with a with a mis- with a mistake that they made, but weren't willing to own it, and then he basically went to George uh, uh, Chief Tidwell of the Forest Service back in 2010, and said, "Hey, you guys have kind of blown this. This guy's about to lose the ski area and lose his life savings, right. and he's missed the deadline because we had gone to a non-refundable deposit because of the problems at the end." And and Chief Tidwell put in motion something that no one, I don't think it's ever done in, in, in the United States. And that is uh, my, my, what's called a FAD, my financial ability determination, which I think takes somewhere between three and six months, was completed in 17 days. And we were able wow. to close on April 29 of 2010. And uh, this is 12 years coming up.
1: So you've had some ups and downs. Um, you've put a lot of money into the place, like you said, reset the relationship with the customers. Uh, The one big improvement I want to talk about, Tim, is the snowmaking system, which is a really incredible thing that you've been working on for a few years now. So tell us what kind of snowmaking China Peak had before and tell us about this new system and how that's going to transform the experience of skiing at China Peak. So um, we, (laughs) the
0: weather we've had is unprecedented in the history of the resort. Resort's going to be coming up on 63 years old. I have records getting back Almost forty years of snowfall and skier attendance and all that, and so when we looked at the previous ten years, two thousand to two thousand and ten winters, um, there was no there was no 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 significant drought at all, not one. They never missed Christmas ever. All of a sudden, we've missed it seven times, and wow. and the only reason that we're still alive is because I have a partner whose name is Ross Blackburn. Two partners, Ross Blackburn and Chris Hecker. Ross Blackburn is one of the most successful almond packagers in the world, out of Fresno, born and raised there, and all that. And Ross has been the bank of China Peak, so we don't we do not have convention. We do not have a bank. We have a bank that we deposit money into. We do not borrow money from a bank. Ross has provided our seasonal line for years. We've never had a problem paying him back. We've had some years where it wasn't going to happen very quickly, but you know we finally finally in in two thousand eighteen. Um, and, and this is where Bill Kilbrue gets a ton of credit. Bill says, look, we, we, let's have a meeting with your partner and let me explain to him, you don't have a choice here. It's expensive. I get it. You're going to run your credit line up to probably an uncomfortable number. I get it. But one more drought and you guys are gone because we were not only burned out financially, we were also burned out mentally. I mean, it was incredibly fatiguing. We were laying off people mid winter, including myself. We had no employees in January, I think, of 2017. It was just literally incredible. And the fact that we weren't in completely mired in debt was amazing because the ski area can, does very, very well when we had any break at all. We had a very – we had run – that we were good operators. We were profitable operators. We were tight operators. And that place made three or four times the money with the same amount of volume as Snow Summit did. So we had really – Done what we said we could do, which was to be infinitely more profitable than, than Dick ever was when he owned the resort. So we sat down at Ross's house, uh, quite a spectacular place in Fresno, and Dick flew. I mean, and Bill Kilbrew flew in. Bill has never charged me a nickel for what he's done to help um design that snowmaking system not 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 a not a dollar of jet fuel he's landed his helicopter there probably a dozen times he's flown his jet into the airport never a hotel room never jet fuel never nothing and he has spent a lot of time helping us so we sat down there summer of 2018 spring of 2018 and bill and i and ross said okay let's go let's go the system they had Stuart was what you would call a classic patch and fill system. It had pipe everywhere with no horsepower. So if you had natural snow, it was four inch, four inch pipe, almost everywhere. Two inch, four inch pipe. It was old pipe from Snow Summit back in the day. They had about a thousand gallons a minute capacity coming out of two pump houses. They had pipe on a lot of runs, but they couldn't do anything. So basically it was there to supplement natural snow. So water bars, breakovers, the high wear areas, bad exposures, loading ramps, unloading ramps, base areas, all that stuff. It could put out enough snow to, to supplement. It was not designed to do what we were asking it to do, which is to basically go after, you know, it's like, it's like asking this, this new kid quarterback for Jacksonville, win a game. He's not going to win a game. Okay? <laughs> he's, got, he's not going to happen. Same thing right. happened to John Elway. Same thing happened to Peyton Manning. Same thing happened to every all these guys. That's what we were asking the system to do. Take us to the Super Bowl with a thousand gallons a minute on a four-inch pipe, so we got stuck with all these droughts, and that couldn't do it. So we we built a new a new uh, we installed all new pipe everywhere, six and eight inch all over the mountain, uh, about t- over twenty thousand feet. Scott Towsley uh, is one of my be- my best uh, closest friends in the industry. So Towsley brought his best guys up there. He's the number one pipe guy in the, in the world for snowmaking. He comes up there. Jay Collins. Um, who has been around snowmaking, selling snowmaking, installing snowmaking for 40 years, became the on-site consultant. So we, we were able to do it in-house with Jay and Bill helping us. We built a new pump house that pumps out uh, uh, with the help also of um, of uh, Tim Wang, who helped design the pump house. So uh, between we that, that pump house is 22, 2250, three, three, three pumps, Uh, 750 GPM. The other two have 1,000 gallons a minute. So if we get cold, we're over 4,000 gallons a minute. The most important part of the system, as as you mentioned earlier when we talked about this, is the water source. We Mm -hmm. happen to be on Huntington Lake. So we run about 5,500 feet of pipe into Huntington Lake. And uh, that's our source of water. So we have the same thing that Snow Summit and Bear Mountain have in Southern California and a few others have, and that is virtually an unlimited supply of water because the, the, because China Peak faces 100% north, 100%. So every flake of snow we make comes right back down to the same place we just got it from. So we've had very good luck with, with not having any issues in terms of our consumptive use because we're basically about... We, we, we're we figuring about 10 to 12% consumption. So the size of that lake is, you know, X, I think it's 288 acre feet. You know, we're, we're going to consume, you know, 10 or 15 acre feet. So it's, and everybody knows it's critical to the success of the resort. So we've had great success getting cooperation from Edison and the County and everybody else when it comes to, you know, using that water.
1: And that thing will be firing at maximum power this winter. Is that right? Yeah, we had, as, as, as,
0: as Bill said to me, you know, Bill has built two massively successful snowmaking systems. You know, he was the guy in the 1980s saying, you know, I think one of these days is not going to snow 400 inches in Lake Tahoe. And I don't think <laughs> it's going to snow before Christmas. So I skied top to bottom 3,600 vertical feet with Bill Killerbrew with no natural snow in December of 1987. That's how oh far God. ahead of everybody else he was. He, he oh just God. simply was a different, you know, five people went broke at Eldora. Until he came along, wow. including some very big names. So he, 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 just, he just sees the world through a set of goggles that very few of us do. And he told me, he goes, Tim, it's going to be three years. Year one is going to be an absolute disaster. You, you will not believe what goes wrong. Year two, you'll be at 60%, 70%. And you'll be okay. You'll make snow, but you're, never, you, you're not going to get to capacity. Year three, you'll have figured it out. And guess what? We're at year three. My son, Troy, got thrown to the wolves in 2019 when our snowmaking and grooming manager quit at Christmas vacation. Troy got out of college and came down there to build terrain parks. The next thing I <laughs> know, I said, Troy, it may not be quite as fun as you thought it was going to be because I need you to make snow like starting tonight. And Troy is an incredibly talented kid and had took the bull by the horns. He's very, he's very mechanically. He was an engineering major originally and then switched to ski business. So he's very mechanically inclined. He's able to walk into a pump house. that looks like spaghetti, you know, to anybody else and figure out where the water was moving. And, and it, plus our, our system is complicated. Three pump houses, very complicated. Wow. So uh, he's, he is right now sitting there at that ski area. I said, Troy, um, you can, I want you, you know, you're going to lace up your spikes. You're going to lace up the track spikes here by around, thing, around October 31st. The entire system is tested. Everything's running. He's already running pumps. And he's basically saying let's 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 get it on let's let's go and the second we get temperatures last year, Stuart, the best run of the year in California was number was number two November second through the seventh oh wow, and we weren't ready we, we had the fire, we weren't allowed back to the ski area we couldn't install the pipe, we hadn't tested the system, and of course as soon as he missed we couldn't get going to about november twenty sixth so we missed the first good run and so I said troy. You never know when it's going to happen. You know, Carl Kapazinski will tell you, he goes, you know what? I don't have a lot of water, but I can't wait around. And if I, if all of a sudden it comes on a Halloween, I have to go. And I'll just have to rely on the fact that most of that snow is going to stay, even if it, I don't get open for the two or three weeks. And and that's the philosophy we have. Where the second we hit late October, I told Troy, I said, you're ready to go. He's got a snowmaking team. He's got all his guys back, which is huge in snowmaking. So they all know how to run the system. and. He's pretty excited, even though it's a ridiculous amount of work. They had some some hours, some year, some weeks last year, Stuart, they were running 90 hours a week. Unreal. Wow. So he's ready to go. I'm excited for
1: him and his team. All right, Tim. Well, I could keep this going all day, but I know you got to run. I would love to have you back on sometime to just talk about China Peak some more. I wish you the best of luck getting that snowmaking system 100% online and, and for your best winner yet. So thank you very much. Stuart, it's been a pleasure.
0: And um, I'm happy to share a career like many others. It's been been a wild ride.
1: That's Tim Cohey, Managing Partner, CEO, and General Manager of China Peak, California. Tim, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Let me know the second that book drops, because if that conversation was a preview, then that's going to be one hell of a read. China Peak's gears. I'm sorry. There's a lot I didn't get to there. That was my fault, not Tim's. I could have taken the conversation in a different direction, but I got so caught up in the story of getting to China Peak that we never really got to China Peak until the end, at least not to the extent that we typically would in one of these podcasts. But Tim, you are welcome back on the podcast anytime to tell the rest of that story. I thank you all very much for listening. Next up, I have Australia. I've already recorded a conversation with Mount Buller GM, Lori Blampy. That is an icon past partner, and you are going to want to hear that one. After that, look out for a conversation about the Boyne Mountain 2030 plan with longtime Boyne Mountain GM, Ed Grice. I have plenty more booked for this fall, including conversations with leaders of Bristol Mountain, Washington, Ski Cooper, Shawnee, Maine, Jackson Hole, Wachusett, Steamboat, and here's two new ones I did not tell you about last time, Vail Resort's East Region CEO and Smuggler's Notch. I cannot let you go without reminding you once again to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at StormSkiing.com. Also follow along on Twitter or Instagram at storm Ski Journal. You can also find the Storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening stay well, stay safe. I am Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.